Good morning, Allison Sloot from Canada. Hello. It's <laughs> well, good, a, good afternoon here. from the East Coast. <laughs> good afternoon. I assume, based upon a conversation I had with a, uh, a friend in Virginia yesterday, that it's snowing. You've got some snow on the ground out there. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I live. I live about an hour north of Toronto. So, when Toronto doesn't have snow, we usually have snow. So, yes, we we don't have too much, but it's a little bit. It's a little on the frigid side today. Frigid's not generally a word that we we use in the Bay Area. Although, yeah. being a very soft Californian, fifty degrees seems really cold. I think it's right now. I think we're sitting at about minus ten Celsius. So, what's that? Like fifteen Fahrenheit, something like something that. Like that. Yeah, that's cold. <laughs> that's cold enough. <laughs> Stay warm. You describe on your website, you call Cab Franc a humble grape. Yes. You call it the humble Cab Franc variety. Why is that? Oh my gosh. It's really what it comes down to is it's the grape that it never asks for the limelight. It plays, it has so many awesome characteristics in so many different ways in that it it can be the star of the show but it never commands attention in the same way that its siblings Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot tend to do and when it's in a blending situation you would miss it if it wasn't there but again it doesn't steal the show it's just the supporting it's like that fabulous supporting actor role that if that person wasn't there, the movie would be completely different. But yeah, it's just, it's this very uh, humble, unassuming, it's not for everybody. It's the sort of grape that does have some polarizing opinions. But yeah, I consider it a really humble kind of grape. It it does the work. It lends a helping hand when it needs to, but never asks too much in return. Wine Saves Lives is a podcast about what it's like to be in the cellar and in the vineyards mm -hmm. and part of a family that's been making wine in California for 170 years. But really the focus is Cabernet Franc because that's sure. that's my favorite variety. That's the focus of Stephen Kent Winery. And I know that it's a focus for a lot of, of what you do with your life. So we're, we're going to dive very deeply into Cabernet Franc <laughs> in a variety of ways. You grew up in Canada. Correct. Was your family into wine? Nope, not at all. <laughs> no, I, I had, I had two, I have uh, two parents that were very much beer people because that's what you drank back in the eighties and the nineties. But no, it, I had, I didn't have wine, wine at all. Really, my first, I guess, my first introduction to French wine in general came through French culture. I did a student exchange when I was fifteen to France. I lived in France for three months in Provence, to be specific, and that was, of course, where I got into culture and food and wine. That was my first introduction to it. And then it really in university, eventually after first year, and I had gained the freshman 15 or whatever, drinking too much beer and spirits. It was like, maybe I should switch to wine. <laughs> that seems like a classier <laughs> beverage. So I cut my teeth on yellowtail and Tempranillo from Spain. That was $10 a bottle, that kind of stuff. And then it just slowly grew from there. It, it blossomed from there. What exactly. what did your what did you, what did your family do? What do your parents do? Uh, my mom, very humble uh beginnings. Like my mom uh was a school bus driver. My dad drove transport truck. That was my yeah. upbringing. Very simple kind of rural upbringing in South, I guess, South, yeah, I guess it's Southern Ontario. I, it's so funny. Everybody thinks of Toronto as being the epicenter, but there's a lot beyond Toronto. So I basically grew up an hour from where I'm currently living. 
So you, you self-described humble beginnings. Where did the urge to go to France to school for three months come from? That's a great question. And honestly, I'm not sure. I, I don't really know. Maybe it stems from always being curious about geography and the world around me as a kid. I grew up playing, I don't know if this game was even in the US. I'm sure it was, but there was a game show called Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? Was that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that yeah. was like something that I remember watching as a kid and I, just the fascination with languages and culture and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember that I was in 10th grade and there was an announcement that came on the PA system and they said, oh, if you're interested in possibly looking at a foreign exchange thing, go to this open house and get the information packet. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. And I literally came home that night and I was like, mom, I want to go to France. And she was like, okay, <laughs> let's have a talk <laughs> kind of thing. And yeah, so I'm, I'm not really sure. I Perhaps it also has to do with the fact that we have to study French in school. So it's because we're bilingual, it's a requirement. So I think I already had that kind of basis of quasi second language, at least learning uh, wise under my belt. So that also may have <laughs> caused the caused it. But yeah, it's, I'm not really too sure, actually. It, it, but th so that kind of answers my second question, which or my next question, which was going to be why France. So obviously, you're as a bilingual Correct. part of the country anyway. That that makes perfect sense. Why you wouldn't choose Germany or, or <laughs> exactly? There was a, obviously other <laughs> options as well, but yeah, I looked at my parents and they were both like, "You're already learning French. You have a good grounding, so that's like an easy transition." And you are you using French in your everyday life e right now? Yes. Yeah, I would say pretty, pretty, yeah, <laughs> I would say for the most part, I work for a, I work for a wine import agency that's our office is based out of Quebec, and we have an office mm -hmm. here in Ontario. So the majority of my team are French speakers, Quebecois speakers. Uh, and then of course, in my communications with vignerals in France, I do speak in French, both written as well as <laughs> when I'm there in person. So Le Maitre de Chez is the company that you work right. for. So for for the American audience, part of the audience, describe what working with the LCBO was all about and, and the distribution end of things and how a small winery from California might get wine into Ontario for the one or two people who might want it. <laughs> Quite frankly, actually, California wine, that's the largest category in the LCBO as far as um, imports are concerned. But as you can appreciate. So in Ontario, we have the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, the keyword being control. Uh, it is a monopoly system. So the uh -huh. LCBO controls the importation, distribution, wholesale, warehousing, and also the retail. So we don't have any independent retail shops. They're all owned by the monopoly. And essentially, if you walk into any one of those cookie cutter LCBO stores, everything that you see on the shelf has been placed there via a tender opportunity system. So they basically six to nine months out, they post a, an open tender call for agencies like ours to submit wines for, oh, we need California Cabernet from this price point to this price point send in gotcha. what you got. And usually it has to do with uh, the wonderful matrix of 
highest score, lowest price, because that's what's important <laughs> <laughs> as far as the LCBO is concerned. Um, but yes, it's extremely challenging um, in that regard. And really, uh, I would say for the most part, in terms of the retail stores themselves and what you see on the shelf, it's really about the big brands and the guys that have the the cash to be able to support with marketing dollars and all kinds of other stuff in addition to the scores and the and having essentially economies of scale to be able to offer ridiculous price points so Sure. I, I don't want to dive too deeply down the rabbit hole of the LCBO. We, we've had we had our own version in the state of Pennsylvania and a couple of other states, which did open up in the last several years for direct to consumer shipments, which is nice. And that that's maybe the one last question I want to uh, ask about the wine environment for wine lovers in Ontario. My sense is obviously that the LCBO can't have every single item that exists in the world that someone might want right. on the shelf, as it were. How frustrating is it as a wine lover, wine communicator like you are, or just a consumer who really loves wine to mm. get things that may exist as a hundred case lot at a small winery in Livermore, California, for instance? That's where what we call a consignment program kind of comes in. So basically agencies like ours have the ability to bring in private orders, essentially. So private stock, if you will. Most of that is geared toward restaurants because the restaurants obviously want interesting things for their wine list. So basically, right. as an agency, we can essentially bring in products for restaurants or for the direct, the general consumer. The issue with a general consumer that you have to buy by the case. So I have access. There's lots of great, for example, French Loire Cabernet Franc producers that have agents in Ontario that have distribution in Ontario. But when I want that wine, I have to buy a whole case, which wow. is a little bit expensive wow. and, and <laughs> takes up space. So uh, that's the biggest hurdle as a wine lover, especially as a consumer here in Ontario, is if you really do want something. Either you're buying by the case or sometimes people split cases. I know there's like Facebook groups where it's like share cases. Who wants to go in on a case of this with me? And it's, um, okay. so there's ways we, we figured out ways to make it work. <laughs> A, a little more affordable as a, and we'll get to cab front chronicles here in a little bit, but so uh, as you're, as a wine communicator, that's how I know you as a wine communicator, you're um, passionately talking about a particular wine from Chignon or Borgoy. How are you accessing those wines? Are you doing it strictly by the sort of case method or are you able to get wines from obscure vineyard home that you want to talk about? For the most part, I buy them and often buy the case. I have a winemaker in Niagara that uh, that is my case buying buddy. So I just, I keep my ear to the ground and I'm like, Brian, there's a, there's, this is just landed. Are you in? I'm like, it's only a six pack this time. That means you only have to take three instead of six. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for the most part, i buy through the system. I buy six packs or 12 packs as required. I do have a shout out to my retail partner. I have a retail partner in Buffalo that helps me track things down that 
are a little bit more difficult to find here. And they also have a, a wine cellar kind of storage set up as well. So I just, if there's something that I can't find here, I just shoot them a little email and be like, hey guys, <laughs> I'm looking for this. Can you see if you can find it? And then I'll ask, is there a minimum buy? And sometimes they'll be like, nah, you can buy as much as you want. So I'll be like, okay, give me three bottles and set it aside and I'll be by to pick it up whenever I can. So you're in university. What are you studying? What's your concentration when you're in college? Funny enough, I actually, the major that I got accepted for was actually European studies, which is quite hilarious, even though, because that's where I ended up quasi in the end. But I switched majors halfway through my first year of university and into a bachelor of commerce program. So I did a, a business degree with a focus on economics and finance is what okay. I graduated with. Did you have any idea at that point in time? I, most college kids don't. I thought I did, but you hadn't, I assume from your expression, you had no idea where that was going to lead you. No, but you see, that's the thing is I was one of those kids have it so different these days, right? Is I was in university over 20 years ago. And that was at the time where you were just like, get a degree people, basically, I remember going to my guidance counselor and it was like, you can be a lawyer, a teacher, a doctor. A... It was like the standard 12 things right. that you can do with your life. So I switched to a business degree because I thought that might open more doors as far as opposed to a general arts degree or something of that nature. But I just assumed that when I graduated school that I would have employers like banging down my door, like, ah, oh, she's got a great degree in business. Let's hire her. Of course, that did not happen. <laughs> so I, so I actually I worked for uh, one of the major banks here in in Canada for the first three years out of out of university. I actually I started as bank teller and then I moved up into a personal banking kind of role, and that was essentially what I did for the first three years, three yeah three and a half years out of school. So, so no, at no this point, yeah, it's always interesting to see how far away from what one studies one actually gets i know now, right is wild yeah i i think i'm like the previous generation from you and i was in college back in the early 80s and it was a similar kind of a thing i, I thought i was going to go to law school eventually and thank god i didn't the paths are very twisty and windy and wonderful in that regard so you're working in a bank you presumably have a little bit more money available to you than you did when you were in college yeah when did you start buying wine Huh. I was still a very much a casual, have a glass of wine, but even shoot, even after university, it wasn't like it was an everyday thing or it was not that I was seeking interesting things out. Like I had probably merged into non-yellowtail camp at this point <laughs> in terms of my wine consumption. <laughs> I was probably very Eurocentric now, but still probably buying Georges de Boeuf Beaujolais Village and Louis Jetto, Bourgogne Chardonnay and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I was still not even remotely in the headspace that I currently ever, I was still a little bit of a ways, I think, down the way. So is there a seminal bottle? The, well, yeah, the, the one experience that, for you? The, the aha moment, uh, <laughs> the yeah, wine the epiphany aha. moment. Yeah. So basically I had just, shoot, this is probably 2007. I had left the banking world. I had made the decision that I wanted a career in wine, which was a bit of a, one of those weird roundabout situations. Basically I quit my job because I was miserable and I had 
I worked with a career coach for a couple of months to do a little bit of soul searching. And this woman was ahead of her time in terms of how she thought about the world. And it was like, she was the one back in 2006, 2007, that was saying, follow your passion, whatever that is, go for it. So anyway, it was through her that we honed in on the fact that I loved food, wine, and traveling. And those were like my top three favorite things. And she was helping me. She was like, you should do a career in food. You could cook and you could do this. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to, I don't want to cook for a living because then that's going to ruin cooking for me. She said, wine is an extension of food. I was like, okay, all right. So that, okay. So the wine it is. So, so I had left the bank at this point and I had now started my first job in the wine business. And this was shortly into that kind of transition. And I went to a restaurant in Toronto and did one of my very first like tasting menu experiences. So I, I would have been in, I would probably have been 27, 26, 27 at this point. And so I went on, a, I did one of these nine course tasting menus with pairings, the whole shebang. And mm-hmm. partway through that dinner, one of the courses was a foie gras course. And the sommelier came to the table and he said, okay, so normally we would pair this course with a Sauterne. And at this point, I'm starting to do some reading and I'm doing some studies. So I understand what Sauterne is. And he's, but I'm going to do something a little bit different. And he's, so he pulls out this bottle of older seven year. And he said, this wine is bone dry. He's like, it's like licking honey off of a rock. And he's, but this is going to be a, a, the most amazing pairing with this foie gras. And that, that it was that awesome. bottle. And I have no idea, I have no idea who the producer was or what the vintage was or anything. I just know it was seven year and it had some good, like it had a good 10, 15 years on it. So it had some age and it was like that moment of, holy cow, this dude isn't joking. Like it literally tastes like rocks and honey and like all of these dried fruits and all of these amazing things. And I was, yeah. And that was it. That's awesome. That I, that's a, a very delicious story. So you're you have this experience with that particular wine. So how long does it take for the thought processes on a daily basis to be reflecting back on that particular bottle, but also thinking about this can't be the only wine in the world that might be like that. Mm. That's a good question. It probably all stems from the fact that, so when I started working in wine, Ontario wine was essentially my universe. I worked for, my first job in the wine business was working for a winery in the Niagara Peninsula. I was their export manager and which is a role that I still, to this day, my, the, my old boss, every time I see him, I give him the biggest hug. Cause I was like, dude, you took a chance on me and I had no experience. I had no wine knowledge, nothing. And look at me now, but anyway, (laughs) so essentially I was, I did exports for this Niagara winery. And so my universe was Ontario wine, but because I had to travel quite a bit, for my role, I was traveling probably 50% of the time. I was, of course, was traveling to, I was traveling to Asia. I was traveling to parts of Europe, parts of the Caribbean, the US. So every time I would go out, there was never Canadian wine anywhere. So of course I would be forced to drink other things. So it's probably that time, those first nearly eight years uh, in the wine business and having to travel as much as I did and visit markets that didn't have the restricted access that we had in Ontario, where all of a sudden I'm in London for three, four days and I can like, oh, it was like 
my whole universe just opened up as far as wine was concerned, because very few places that I traveled to had the same level of restrictions to access that Ontario did. So that really allowed me to start to dive into wine a little bit deeper. That, that's and you're doing sales for the export company at that point in time. There, I was driving with my wife down to Arizona a week or so ago, and my wife is was hired as a as our harvest intern in 2018, having been an Oregon wine person and, and moved to California. And we were driving down to Arizona and listening to podcasts. It's a 12 hour drive down Highway 5, which is about as boring as it gets, and find this um, Ontario, based in Ontario, these two guys. I know that you've been on their podcast, the two guys talking oh, about yeah. wine or whatever that podcast is. And they were talking about Cabernet Franc and talking about Ontario Cabernet Franc. And, and, uh-huh. and I think both of them believing that Ontario, as an area in a general, generally speaking, has attained world-class capabilities as far as Cab mm-hmm. Franc is concerned. And that they were, I, I think, hoping, cheerleading, that more people would start producing Cab Franc and it would become more and more of a thing. Are you, is that a, an accurate uh, judgment, do you think? In terms of Ontario and where we're at, in Ontario and that variety in particular, yeah, where we are, Ontario really does make exceptional Cabernet Franc. Um, when I started in the industry, that was the grape that, when we were exporting, when I was selling our wine abroad, most of it, of course, was ice wine. But when we talked about red, we talked about Cabernet Franc. There was other producers that talked Pinot. Where our winery was, we weren't really in Pinot territory. Our The Bordeaux varieties were the better varieties for us, but we could never really ripen uh, Cab Sauve well. And Merlot, while it worked, it didn't have the same kind of, we're in the post sideways era. So nobody's talking Merlot anymore. So Cabernet Franc was a a point of different differentiation. And I would say in Ontario, we we make excellent Cabernet Franc. I don't think it's still, I think it's still a really hard sell, even just for locals. I would say people are into it, but some people still don't get it. That's the reality is that the average Ontario wine drinker, they're used to California Cabernet, they're used to French wine, Italian wine. We get very little selection in terms of from the Loire Valley in terms of like on the LCBO shelf. So unless you know what to look for, yeah, people still don't really get what Cabernet Franc is, which is crazy, especially for two people that like love the variety. But I still think it's a, I still think it's a bit of a, a hurdle from a marketing perspective. Uh, indeed. I mean, we, we've we embarked on this idea of Cab Franc as our featured grape in the last probably four or five years. I mean, my family's been making Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay for you know, uh, more than a century. And Cab Franc, part of what makes Cab Franc so amazing, I think, is the fact that it doesn't appeal to everybody. There's a sense of there's a sense of specialness to the variety. There's almost a sense of you have to know a password in a way. You let the cab franc speak easy, and unless you know the password, you're not going to understand what it means to get through that door. Yeah. That's also a problem, though. I mean, if you're trying to base a wine future, a, a future that includes generation seven, eight, nine, and whatever down the road, you have to have some kind of firm footing. And so we're betting on the fact that even if it isn't the next big thing in the red wine world. It's going to be a thing, sure, and, and that that will be a big enough thing if we do our job right to sustain a small family winery. Uh, what is it that people don't understand about Cap Franc? 
do you think? I think the biggest problem is it shares part of its name with its most famous offspring. (laughs) So people see Cabernet and they assume Sauvignon first and they don't really realize that. And it feels crazy to say that, but for the general public, not the wine savvy nerds out there, but for the general public, they do not even understand that Cabernet Franc is its own grape. So I think that is, of course, its own hurdle. And then for those that perhaps are understand that it's its own grape, they don't know, they assume that it's going to be very closely stylized to Cabernet Sauvignon. And it can, uh, but in my opinion, that's not the true expression of the grape. Um, I've had examples where it feels like the Cabernet Franc has been Cabernet Sauvignonized. And to me, that's not what the grape is all about. I think the grape is about nuance. I think the grape is about aromatics and perfume and all of those sexy, savory, herbaceous kind of undertones. And so if you're a person that is perhaps used to drinking uh, Argentinian Malbec or California Cabernet or riper styles of reds, you're going to taste a Cabernet Franc. And initially that could be a little bit off-putting to you because you're going to be like, oh, wow, this is not ripe or something like this, but you don't realize that's part of the grape's DNA. So I think that kind of comes down to it. I know a lot of like, like staunch Cabernet Franc haters that really truly do not like the grape because of those green undertones to it. But I just think it's just lack of awareness, like anything with regards to Riesling suffers the same fate being always sweet. So Cabernet Franc has its own, has its own kind of hurdles that it has to get over as far as the general public is concerned. Are you bullish on Cab Franc's growth for publics, not only Ontario, but just in general, you've been to the Loire, we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. You've been to other wine producing regions that Cab Franc is, a, is an important piece. Do you sense that there is a future for the variety? I don't think it'll ever be mass scale. Like I don't ever think it'll be wide, widespread for lack of a better word, uh, mainly because it is not the easiest grape to deal with. It is a very fickle challenging variety. It's challenging in the vineyard. It is very site sensitive. And if you're not working with it properly in the vineyard, or you don't know how to manage it in the vineyard, you're not going to get something good to work with in the cellar. So I don't think it is, I don't think it is as easy as a grape to kind of plant and switch on, if you will, like Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot have adapted to these it seems that you can literally put those two grapes anywhere, especially if it's warm, and they'll do just fine. Whereas Cabernet right. Franc, it's a little bit more particular. It doesn't like it hot. It prefers it a little bit cooler. It also needs deeper soils. It needs it needs certain amount of moisture, and it needs that canopy a yield balance to really be at its best. And that's I I was in Bordeaux in June for the first annual Cabernet Franc Symposium that was hosted by Chateau Jean Fort. And I believe it was the winemaker, the technical director for Chateau Cheval Blanc, who used the term, and I kid you not, these were exact words, he referred to Cabernet Franc as a diva. 
in terms of a great, like super particular, like you just got to put it in the right spot. You got to take care of it. You can't, you got to pamper it. You have to, <laughs> you got to <laughs> just give it a lot of attention in order for it to really give you its very best. So by that fact, I just don't think that we're going to see it ever really widespread. Cause for me, the best examples that I've tasted are those that truly get it and are willing to give the grape the time and energy it needs in the vineyard and the seller to really maximize, maximize the grapes potential. Like I wrote my last, my last Substack, I was talking a bit about Argentina. The mm -hmm. Argentines have been saying for 10 years that Cabernet Franc was going to be the next thing. It's right. still, we're talking a very small piece of the puzzle and even if they do start to do it, I still think it's going to be very, very niche. It's interesting. I'm thinking of it from a marketing standpoint, if I'm an Argentinian producer and the whatever Mendoza or some other part of Argentina is thinking this could be our grade, you, we're always talking in, in sort of um, in an aspirational way, right? That it's going to be the next big thing. We've talked about that in California for Syrah over the course of the last 30 years, it's had, it was going to be the next big thing five different times. And it probably never will be the next biggest thing. It was interesting, the way you're describing the needs of Cab Franc as a variety in the vineyard, in the cellar, um, reminds me of Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And I can't attribute all of Pinot Noir's sort of ascendancy from the early 2000s in, Amer in, in the US to just one movie. Uh, that mm -hmm. certainly helped this idea of people who hadn't had Pinot Noir trying it. Is Can that be, why isn't Pinot Noir and the Pinot Noir experience in the U.S. and by, I, I, by extension, I think Canada as well, just based upon some cues that I've caught, can that not serve as a model for Cabernet Franc? And why not if it can't? <laughs> I don't know. Could it work? I just, I don't know. I just don't know if Cabernet Franc has the, you know, I think of, you think of Burgundy as being the OG region, like the hallowed ground for Pinot Noir. And Burgundy, there's a lot, I guess it's like, I think of Pinot Noir and I think of Burgundy as far as those two regions and how Burgundy somehow caught that was really part of the reason why Pinot Noir ascended the way it did, I think, to a certain extent is, yes, you had the movie, um, but essentially most of the guys making Pinot Noir in the new world, it's Burgundy that kind of captured their attention and that's what they're emulating. That's what they have in the back of their head is that great Gevry Chambertin, that great whatever it is that that they're really right. into. And that's the model that has pulled a lot of these guys in. I just don't think the Loire, if we make that same parallel, you've got the Loire and you've got Bordeaux and you've got Bordeaux, which is seen as grandpa's wine region for lack of a better right. word. It's very much, right. if you look at the new wine consumer, they're not interested in Bordeaux because that's what their dad or their grandparents drank. So Bordeaux is not cool. And then the Loire is this kind of, unknown, like undiscovered. It's still very much a wine professional, wine enthusiast kind of region that the Psalms get, the wine pros get, they see the value there, but the consumer doesn't understand really the Loire and the fact that the Loire is so diverse. There's Chenin, there's Pinot, there's Sauvignon Blanc, there's Muscadet and like tons of stuff in between. So it's not like you can 
position and create that same parallel, I think, with regards to the whole Pinot Noir Burgundy kind of connection and, and making those linkages for people. Whereas I think Cabernet Franc, as far as it's if you think of the motherland, it's a bit more fragmented in terms of where it's grown and who's growing it. And is it a blending partner or can it be its own thing? It's a little bit more confusing. I, I think you're right. I, I, there's, I was reading something the other day about, about the state of Washington state wine mm-hmm. and how there are, there's Chateau Saint-Michel is saying that they've canceled 40% of their contracts with outside growers there are 80 some odd varieties planted in the Walla Walla area or in the larger area of Washington state. And there's no real grape for people to get their arms around as producers. And then consequently co- communicating those, whatever the nuance of the variety that's chosen to the con- potential consumer. And I think that what you're saying, I think is an interesting way of, of describing the same thing. There's no real easy marker for Cabernet mm-hmm. Franc in the consumer's mind. Um, California Cabernet, Napa Valley Cabernet is really a vestige of Bordeaux Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of the people who first made Napa Cab in the early seventies were, some of them had been fighting in the war in Europe in World War II and coming back to the U.S. and having fallen in love with wine, started planting Cabernet in warm Napa Valley to, 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 to greater acclaim than what was already planted there. The Loire Valley, as you mentioned, is an 800-mile-long river. It's not a, a small geographical area like Burgundy is, or Napa Valley is, for that matter. There are, in terms of cost of the wine or the price of the wine, there are not many producers in the Loire who are commanding hundreds of dollars per bottle. They're probably on one hand that you can count them. So there's a sense, I think, from consumers potentially that this grape is, is not respected by the forebears, as it were, outside of the Loire. It's mm-hmm. a blending. It's not standing on its own. It's not very expensive. Where the hell is it, really, that causes, I think, some of these, uh, again, the idea that you've got to delve a little bit deeper. you got to be, you got to be a particularly passionate person about this grape mm-hmm. to have the, or about wine in general, to have, to ultimately be admitted into this room. Yeah, I do. I think to a certain extent, it is very much a it will stay that way, like a bit of an insider thing. Those that get it are like usually like you or I and really get it and love it. And right for others, it's just they're they're just, yeah, they're they don't get it or they just there's other things that shiny objects that catch their attention <laughs> instead. Indeed. Yeah, like the white claw of the world for its two or three years or whatever. I will leave that be. <laughs> so you're working for an export company. You're traveling all over the world. When when do you have that Cab Franc epiphany? Have you already had it? I don't think there was ever an epiphany per se. I think it was really, it was just a gradual, slow drip kind of situation. Because as I said, like our flagship red was a Cabernet Franc. So when I, when I traveled and we, I did wine dinners and all kinds of things, I talked about Cabernet Franc. I talked about the grape all the time. And it was one of those, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm hyper, like I love my curiosity fuels everything. 
So here right. I am traveling to these different places. And every single time there was a Cabernet Franc on a wine list, I was like, I got to order that because I got to see what that right. one tastes like. Because it was always to compare like where we where we stood as far as sure. the world of Cabernet Franc is concerned. Right. So it became like over the course of those eight or so years that I was doing this, it was like, I'm in Hong Kong. I go to a restaurant and I say, oh, cool. Like this is Cabernet Franc from somewhere. Let's try this. Tuscany. Shoot. I remember being in, gosh, I remember being in London once on a business trip and I went to some random restaurant with my importer and there was a Cabernet Franc from the Yarra Valley in Australia on the list. And I was like, we got to try that. It was the only Cabernet Franc, the only single bridal Cabernet Franc on the list. And I was like, we're trying that. <laughs> and it was one of those. So I was literally like, if it was on the list, I was ordering it. <laughs> so I was bound and determined to taste it. And then by extension, we always had a stand at Pro Wine in Dusseldorf every year. So that three-day show, every single time my boss gave me a break, he was like, okay, Allison, take 45 minutes and go taste. Where would I go? I'd go straight to the Loire section and it would be like timer. And I'd be like, how many of these wines can I taste in 45 minutes? <laughs> and, or I'd walk the halls. If I saw a Cabernet Franc from Romania or somewhere else, it'd be like, oh, cool. I got to try that. And it was all, and it all wasn't even me thinking about, it was purely just to understand where we fit in terms of our own Cabernet Franc. So that when I sold it and when I talked about it to other people, I could start to put the pieces together so that they could understand where we sat as far as the world of Cabernet Franc is concerned. And it wasn't even like it isn't even close to what it is now, but that's how it all began. So I think it's I think it's safe to say that you're a passionate person. You're passionate about wine. You're passionate about Cabernet Franc, obviously. So is there a, a point in time where you're not tasting Cabernet Franc necessarily to compare it to the wines that your winery is producing and that you start thinking of Cabernet Franc differently, that it's, as you call it, the greatest grape in the world, which I happen to agree. It is you're, it, Because your enthusiasm for Cab Franc is not just the enthusiasm of a conscientious employee wanting to make <laughs> sure that she knows more of her, her winery's place in the world. Sure. So when does this happen? Um, probably that shift started to happen when actually when I left that job, I moved to the U.S. Actually, I lived in Miami for almost six years and I worked in the wine business out of Miami, Florida. And when I moved to the U.S. and I moved to Florida and, and that part of Florida specifically, that was like my world opened up because all of a sudden I had access to right. all kinds of things. And initially it was like uh, a little bit overwhelming because it was like, I had so many options because, you know, my local wine shop and Whole Foods and like all of these places, I'm like, right. oh my God, there's so many things that I just want to taste and buy. <laughs> um, but I would say the thing that really got me thinking about Cabernet Franc in a different way was when I moved to the US, I almost immediately uh, signed up for, um, this is just at the, really the beginning of when Psalm Select launched Ian Cobble's online yeah. thing, and he was doing daily deals. And I feel, and he had a really great, like at the, in the beginning, you could build a case, you could buy two bottles and they'd like, until you hit 12 and then they'd ship you your 12 kind of thing. Right. And in those early days, 
Um, he was offering lots of Cabernet Franc on a very regular basis. I would say once a month, sometimes twice a month, there would be a deal on, I remember buying like Olga Ruffo Le Picasse. I remember buying, he had an offer of an older vintage of Olga Ruffo at one point and I bought, I don't know, three or four bottles. And I remember when I finally, when I opened those bottles, it was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. So that literally, and I still to this day, actually in my cellar have a lot of Psalm Select. I got the sticker on the back bottle I, um, I, that I, I literally, it, was like, it literally, it became a point with him in particular was every single time he had an offer for a Cabernet Franc, I just bought, it didn't matter where it was from. It was like, okay, I want to try that one now. And then I want to try that one. And then it just kept spiraling again. So it was like, I'd go to my wine shop. Like, oh, I've never had that one before. Let's try that one. Absolutely. I mean, it's like the, it's like getting into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, right? It is very much like that. So you mentioned earlier that you didn't want to go into cooking because you thought cooking would ruin food for you. (laughs) You are immersed on a daily basis, obviously, with Cabernet Franc. Yeah. And obviously, it seems to me anyway, that, that that you have not tired of Cabernet Franc as a variety by any stretch of imagination. What does Cabernet Franc mean? To me, in general? (laughs) Any way you want to answer that question. What does Cabernet Franc mean? It's home, as far as I'm concerned. That's what that grape is for me, is home. At the end of a day, and I'm going downstairs to make myself dinner or I feel like a glass of wine, there's nothing that I think about in terms of what would make me happier than to open a bottle of Cabernet Franc. So it's like home. It's like your favorite comfort food dish. It's your favorite sweatshirt that really should be thrown in the garbage because it's like (laughs) full of holes and it's worn down to nothing. That's what this grape is as far as I'm concerned is it just feels like your favorite pair of shoes or your best, your favorite food or it's comfort. It's home is the best way I can describe it. Fabulous answer. Thank you. That that I, I got a great answer from Kirk Wiles, who's making a Cap Franc in Virginia and in Santa Barbara. So thank you very much for the great answer. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're in Miami, you're working in wine. When does the idea of writing about it or communicating about it? And I want to talk to you a little bit later about what how social media has changed things for you and how important it is, that sort of thing. But when do you start thinking about what would become Capron Chronicles? It was always in the back of my head. I actually was looking just this past weekend. I had written what was supposed to be like the first blog post. And I have the Word document saved on my on my laptop. I wrote that in 2012. It was the first official blog post that never got posted anywhere. So that's, that's probably when it first started to like really percolate in my head. I just, I have big time imposter syndrome feelings. And every single time I went to write something every single time I went to, even just on my, just, I have a personal Instagram account. Even when I went to post just a picture of a bottle, sometimes it was like, I can't, I don't know what to say. I'm, I don't, I, and I would just shut down and I wouldn't do anything. So that's how I existed. I existed in my own little world of 
Cabernet Franc exploration and drinking and tasting and collecting and, and that kind of thing. And then essentially the impetus of how this is all manifested into what it is now is basically the pandemic happened. I lost my job when I was in the U.S. I was working for a very tiny import startup. And sadly, we our sales just evaporated with the lockdown and we shut our doors six months into the pandemic. So it was September. Wow. And I was on a I was on a visa, so I had no choice but to to move back home. And so when I moved back to Ontario, I had a two week quarantine, and I was still looking for work at this time. So I had a little bit of time on my hands. <laughs> and basically, it was one of these moments where I was sitting, and this is in my quarantine moment. I was chatting with a few of my close wine friends here in Ontario, and I was thinking, maybe I should start this Cabfront Chronicles thing that I've been thinking about doing eight years now. And right. that's when I basically what I did was it was like one day I randomly was like, because every time I tried to write something, I couldn't like the words just I couldn't make it happen. So mm-hmm. I just one day I just grabbed a bottle, opened it and I was like, I'm just going to put my phone in front of my face and talk about this wine. And that's how it all started. That's great. I, from everything that I've read, and, and I finished my first book during the pandemic and have, when I went to school, I have a master's in literature. So I was going to teach college literature, write books. That's what I envisioned when I was 22 years old, envisioned what I was going to be doing. And everything that I, and I love to write, obviously, words are very important to me. However, that being said, I think most people are are digesting whatever they want from the world through pictures and through video and through face-to-face kind of things. And I'm not lamenting the loss of, of something that isn't gone yet, which is a word communication necessarily, but it, it seems to me that uh, that being able to speak face-to-face as a word with somebody, especially somebody who's educated and passionate about what it is that she's talking about, offers uh, many advantages over a word-based communication sure. medium, as it were. You have several thousand followers in Capfront Chronicles with your Instagram. You just joined Substack, and I've been on Substack for a little over a year now. How is that going for you so far? It's good. Social media in general is interesting. I chose Instagram primarily over a traditional blog because I wanted to interact with people, and I felt like a blog was really one-sided. And I even feel that I've only done three posts on Substack, but it does feel very one-sided to me, which is weird because I'm so used to presenting my thoughts and getting, if nothing else, like hearts or claps or (laughs) other random emojis (laughs) as if somebody is like, yeah, I saw this and it's great. Or I saw this and whatever. Not that I'm doing it for those things because I don't really think about it in that way, but I just like to hear from people because I feel like the world of Cabernet Franc is so small. Our little universe of nerds that really love this grape. And I want to know what other people think if they've tried something and or that kind of interaction. So the whole Substack thing is really as much as it's as much as it's another platform. I'm thinking about it more as a more as a routine thing for me, because I want to improve my writing. I want to get better at writing and I need writing to come easier. 
Um, so it's as much about personal development as it is about the Big Kev Front Chronicles universe than anything else is to find new ways to express myself and get better at expressing myself. And so it's, it's as much about personal development as it is anything else. That's interesting. I think being relatively non-crazy human beings, I'm assuming... I, I don't know that I would describe myself as being non-crazy necessarily. <laughs> the people who don't mind shouting out there and not expecting an answer generally are not well-adapted individuals. So I think it's I think it's natural to want to have some kind of shared experience. I mean, mm-hmm. when we're the, the closest we're ever going to get to Broadway is when somebody's opened a bottle of or the wine that we've made in a restaurant or, or what have you. And I would go so far as to say that the wine doesn't really exist until it's tasted by somebody, right? There, there's an implied contract or an implied relationship that if you're making something that is for other people, making something that's meant to be taken in, thought about, felt, uh, it sure. can't be that thing until it is felt and taken in by people. So mm-hmm. I think there's a similar idea in, in communicating about that. I, 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 I think that I finally found out fits and starts of blog writing for the last probably 20 years and off and on, then unless you're doing it frequently, mm-hmm. you have zero chance of being heard, seen, influential, whatever yeah. it is that one wants to be with these things. And what I love about your Instagram posts specifically is how how easily you communicate a lot of the detail about sites, about the vigneron, about uh, certainly about the grape mm-hmm. by extension every single time you do it. So kudos to you. I think you're doing a really great job with with making the grape more accessible and by having traveling and going to places and that kind of thing. It's nice to have you in this sphere. That's to be certain. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Loire Valley, greatest place in the world for Cabernet Franc? As far as I'm concerned, yes. Uh, it's it's yeah it's it's well first and foremost I always tell say this to people I do spend a lot of time talking about the lore and I know there I know Cabernet Franc is planted in a lot of other places but there's I said this uh, actually on Cab Franc uh, I did a live the day before Cab Franc Day and there's more Cabernet Franc planted in the Loire Valley than North America South America South Africa. Hungary and Italy combined. So you imagine wow. that. Okay. The wow. entire Western hemisphere plus South Africa plus Hungary plus Italy. And that I that pretty that. much covers yeah. as far as China's its own China has a good amount of Cabernet Franc too, but there's a lot of Cabernet Franc in the Loire Valley. So by virtue of how much Cabernet Franc is planted there, that kind of skews how much of the Loire I cover as far as my content is concerned, but it is the, it's the OG region. Like it's the, as far as Cabernet Franc as a star variety, that's the one, that's the only place in the world where it is by default, anywhere else in the world where they're making single varietal Cabernet Franc, it's a choice. It's a choice in South Africa. It's a choice in California. It's a choice in Ontario, but in the Loire, that is their grape and they get behind it because that's back in 1937 when the Chino Appalachian was drawn up. They said, OK, 
Cabernet Franc, that's your grape. Here we go. So that's right. what they're <laughs> that's what they're working with. So in that regard, it's an important region as far as single varietal Cabernet Franc is concerned. And really, there is so much diversity there, which is insane. And the more I've dove into it and the more I learn and research and discover, the more I feel like I don't know. But in terms of the regions that are the main regions, even just within them, within their own villages, there is a lot of diversity. And I think I think it's a region that deserves a lot more, a lot more discussion and a lot more to be highlighted more than what it is and highlighted for the differences that these Appalachians offer as far as the wine drinking experience is concerned. We, my wife and I are going in at the mm. end of March. We were hosting a river cruise in Bordeaux the first week or so of, of April, but want to spend, I, I'm I'm writing the Cab Franc book right now, hope to be done in a few months, but need to be at the spiritual center of sure, it before, of before it can be done. And all, offline, I'm going to ask you about some places to go in, in Samur and Chinon, but are any areas outside of the Loire that you're particularly excited about? that are up and coming or that are doing some really cool things. With in product, in with Europe or in general? In anywhere. Yeah, I'm excited about, a like, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot I'm excited about. <laughs> no, I think there's some interesting things happening in Italy, uh, particularly in Tuscany right now. There is a lot of chatter about Cabernet Franc as being a very important variety, particularly along the Tuscan coast, Bulgari, but also uh, other parts of Marema and, and other areas uh, along the Tuscan coast. Sadly, a lot of those wines are very expensive or hard to come by. Some of these great Bulgaris are two, three hundred dollars now a bottle, other wines from Tuscany. So that is a little bit challenging. But nevertheless, I think there's some interesting things happening in Hungary. As far as Cabernet Franc is concerned, I would say if I had to the the caveat with Hungary, I think for me is I feel like they still don't quite get what Cabernet Franc is. So you see that there there's a curiosity around the grape, but for now it's being made in a bit of an international style. So I feel like it lacks a little bit of personality. But I'm I remain optimistic that that Hungary is going to do some cool things. Gosh, where else? Yeah, there's so many cool little spots. Uruguay is another great one where I'm I am keeping my fingers crossed that. Cabernet Franc becomes something really cool in in mm-hmm. Uruguay because I've had a few examples and I'm smitten. I want to I want more Uruguayans to be making Cabernet Franc <laughs> ideally. Really? Yeah. So it's there's a lot. There's but again, it remains a very small piece of the universe as far as as far as winemaking is concerned. Like even South Africa, for example, there's more and more single varietal Cabernet Franc being made in in South Africa. But I think relative to like relative to Shannon, relative to Cabernet Sauvignon, it's a drop in the bucket. So it's by no means mainstream by any stretch of the imagination. Iniquity is not one way of describing Cab Franc at this point in time, unfortunately. No. I, Allison, I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us and look very much forward to our to the readers and, and watchers of Wine Saves Lives to get to experience your passion for Cab Franc. And I look forward to running into you hopefully very soon. My uh, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And I'm hoping that I can get to California this year. It's on the it's on the short list of places I need to I need to go. But yeah, it's it there's, we there's love to a show lot. you Livermore Valley. 
It would be a pleasure. I need to be able to carve out enough time to see the, at least, well, do Northern California to start. And then I'd have to maybe right. do a second trip uh, to, to cover yeah. Santa Barbara and whatnot. Yeah. Exactly. It's a big, it's a big state. Salute Cab Franc Chronicles. Uh, Good fortune to you as you continue to talk about Cab Franc and helping all of us to to get a better handle on the on this amazing variety. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.